morning we turn in the Word of God to Titus chapter 2. This chapter from the Word of God is Paul's instruction to Titus about instruction, what to teach the people, and it contains what he calls the things that are becoming sound doctrine. In other words, the things that harmonize and flow out of sound doctrine versus those things that are unbecoming and incompatible with sound doctrine. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, Gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. morning we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 32. Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we still do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, 
also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that so we may testify by the whole of our conduct our gratitude to God for his blessings, and that he may be praised by us, also that everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof, and that by our godly conversation others may be gained to Christ. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means, for the Holy Scriptures, Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the subject of this Lord's Day is doing good works. The good works that are the subject of this Lord's Day will be explained further in the next Lord's Day and explained in even greater detail in the subsequent Lord's Days until the end of the Catechism. And those good works are basically divided into two parts. Those that are according to the law of God, and thus we preach the Ten Commandments. And then the chief part of those good works, which is prayer, the chief part of thankfulness. That is what's the subject here. What you must also understand is that our fathers deliberately introduce this new section, this third section and final section of the Catechism with this Lord's Day deliberately. And they set forth the truth that the subject matter here belongs to the gospel. We must not have the idea that we have now heard the gospel all of the gospel, and that now we move on to something else. That's not true. Nor must we have the idea that we are done speaking about our salvation and deliverance from our misery. That too is how this is sometimes read. That too would be a grave mistake. The Catechism here sets forth this subject matter as a part of the Gospel, as a part of our deliverance, as a part of our fellowship with God. And that should be very, very clear in our minds as we go through, otherwise you will end up making a grave mistake. You may turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1, to understand what underlies this whole Lord's Day, which is that Jesus is a complete Savior. 
and our deliverance is a complete deliverance. And so the subject matter here belongs to our comfort in life and death. We learned there at the very beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism that my only comfort in life and in death is that body and soul, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's a comfort because of several things that Christ does. And that is the gospel of our comfort. What is it that Christ does? Number one, He has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. Notice the two aspects right there. He has satisfied me from all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. He next preserves me. Preserves me in such a way that everything is subservient or serves my salvation. Even things as hairs falling from my head are under his control. And everything in the world is subservient or serves my salvation. And then lastly, this. By his Holy Spirit... He also assures me of eternal life and, by that Spirit, makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Lying behind this Lord's Day is a deep and profound understanding of our misery and a profound and deep understanding of our deliverance from that misery. That deliverance is sometimes misunderstood or limited to what it truly is, so that the subject matter of this Lord's Day is excluded from that deliverance and from that salvation, so that the subject matter of the Lord's Day is seen as something other than the gospel perhaps even outside the gospel, if not a threat to holy gospel. So much so that to even speak of doing good works is said to be against that gospel, or at least create suspicion with regard to the gospel. The gospel excludes such subject matter. And even more so is it the case when we talk about the fact that we must do good works. That must is explained in all kinds of ways other than the must that's found here in this Lord's Day. Exactly for the same reasons. Because there is a profound misunderstanding of the completeness of our salvation, what it includes, and why our fathers bring it up here in this Lord's Day. With those things in mind, we consider this morning the instruction of this Heidelberg Catechism, 
under the theme, Doing Good Works. And we consider the fact that they are necessary, that they are certain, and that they are purposeful. First, the necessity. There may be absolutely no doubt, no hesitation, no suspicion, and certainly no charges of being antinomian or Arminian and against the gospel when we speak of the necessity of doing good works. That is not Reformed. It does not belong in Reformed thinking. That is evident from the clear language which asks, why must we do good works? That is not a phantom question. That's not a trick question. The answer to that question is not, well, we don't. The answer to that question is, well, I don't, but Christ does them. The question is asked deliberately because it assumes and presumes the teaching of Scripture that we must do good works. If there should be any doubt of that, and certainly our fathers were aware that people would doubt that, call that into question, that does not only happen in our time in the church, but it happened in their time, they add a question and answer that you even look at and you go, oh, if you doubt the necessity of good works, our fathers ask this question. Cannot they then be saved who continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives are not converted to God? Let me shorten that question for you. Can they be saved who don't do good works? That's what it means by continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives are not converted to God. One who is converted to God and is not living a wicked and ungrateful life is one doing good works. You may read it that way. You must read it that way. That's the idea. The answer is by no means. Absolutely not. The Holy Scriptures declare, not Reverend Langrack, not some person opposed to the gospel, not some law preacher, but the Holy Scriptures declare, no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like shall inherit the kingdom of God. I declare to you that if you are an adulterer, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. On the basis of this word of God found in the Heidelberg Catechism, if you are an idolater, if your house is full of idols, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Unchaste, blasphemous, covetous, you spend your life chasing after money, wanting more and more, never satisfied, never content, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now understand what's behind that question. 
Our fathers put it here for a reason. They could have put it somewhere else, which would have partly answered the question, which instantly should come to your mind, which is, well, then who can be saved? Who is saved? Who can stand before God and say, well, I'm none of those things? Well, a child of God does, and he can, but only one way. And that's when he is forgiven his sins, and he stands before God righteous. When he, by faith, believes that he, in himself, an ungodly, unrighteous, wicked, condemned sinner, has been imputed the perfect righteousness and obedience of Jesus Christ so that it's his. That man, that woman, no longer stands before God as an adulterer or an idolater or as a drunk or as a thief. But notice the question isn't put in the section of the Heidelberg Catechism dealing with justification. It could have. And it's a partial, partial answer to the question of how in the world a sinner such as I can inherit the kingdom of heaven. But it's here for a reason. Because our Father are getting at the must. You must understand the must. And lying behind that must is the idea that a person who is justified before God, who is righteous before God by the imputation of Christ's righteousness, must and will do good works. And so much is that true. The answer to question and answer 87, that it's the basis for all Christian discipline. Notice this all follows the subject of the keys of the kingdom. How preaching and Christian discipline open and close the kingdom of heaven. Now on what basis is that done? How can that be done? Can't somebody stand before the elders and say, you can't charge me. You can't convict me. You can't excommunicate me out of the Christian church, even though I'm living like an ungodly man and living in an unconverted state, and even though I'm doing all this wickedness, you can't touch me. My sins are forgiven. How do you respond to that if you're an elder? What do you say? Unless you think those are phantom arguments, I can assure you that just about every person that's put under discipline will invoke those arguments. Trust me on that. Not only that, but they'll throw this back in your face. You're not preaching me the gospel. You're just teaching me the law. You're just telling me what i got to do. You're implying that I'm saved by what I do. And that's really why I do these things. Oh, they do that too. I've had it said right to my face. You're the reason I live as this ungodly man. You're the reason I live in this state of hatred toward my wife. Happens. Because you preach this must. You preach I must do good works. You don't preach enough of the gospel. How do you respond to that? With the Heidelberg Catechism here. And you make very clear the connection. You are fooling yourself, sir or ma'am. When you imagine to yourself that you are righteous 
When you say to yourself that you're forgiven all your sins for Christ's sake and live that way, you don't believe. You're an unbeliever. You're an unregenerate and ungodly man. That's what you are. And so, yes, we are going to administer discipline. And, oh, yes, we will excommunicate you from the church because no adulterer, no drunkard, no thief inherits the kingdom of heaven. Now, have I made the catechism clear as to the must? That must is absolute. The gospel does not take away the must. The gospel enforces the must. It insists on the must. And only the gospel can. Nothing else can. Nothing else does. Now, we have to understand a few things about why this question is here. And who would ask that question, or why is the fathers asking that question the way they do? Since then we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? There's two kinds of people that ask that question. The first kind is opposed to the notion of the premise. They're opposed to the notion that we're delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. They want nothing to do with that. They argue that it's not possible that we are justified by faith without works. That I am righteous before God, absolutely righteous before God, without consideration of my works, without me working anything or doing anything whatsoever, they object to that. And the question really then is, well, then what's the use of good works? Why bother with good works? These are the same kind of people that ask the question that came up when it was asked, what is the profit of believing all this? And the answer was, that I am righteous by faith alone. And at the end of that Lord's Day was an objection. Doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? And the answer was, by no means. Remember that answer? By no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Notice that word impossible. Notice that our fathers basically laid aside that subject until now, and they are returning to it. But you must understand that's a pretty weighty objection. The objection is one that frequently comes up and is the basis of the teaching and the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, of Arminian churches, and any form of works righteousness. And it's a threat, a real threat. The point of our fathers is that regardless of their answer, regardless of what we think of their answer, they're not going to tolerate or put up with any notion that our good works contribute to our righteousness before God. They do not contribute to our salvation. They are not the way unto God. That according to our own synod. We do not do good works as a way unto even salvation or unto the kingdom of heaven. 
to teach that, to believe that, makes our works part of the atoning mediatorship and work of Jesus Christ. We do not pray. We do not do good works. We do not live before God as a means to approach unto Him, to earn His favor, obtain His favor, to gain something from Him. That would all deny the premise that we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours. That would make good works. That would make what good works consist of the means through which we approach God. We enter into His presence, as it were. The premise sets forth the reality that exactly because of faith, exactly because of election, exactly because of regeneration, exactly because the person that's being talked about here is one who is justified, that's the we, that one is in fellowship with God. That God lives with that person, dwells with that person. That God's Spirit is in that person's heart. They are forgiven their sins. They stand before God as righteous. And so the response of the Reformed to that individual who would ask such a question mockingly is that if you imagine that good works play any such role, and that's the reason why you ask, then you are wrong. Good works do not have that function. They do not have that place. They do not occupy that role in our deliverance and our salvation. If you imagine even that notion with regard to the question and answer about whether or not someone who is unconverted and living a wicked and grateful life can inherit the kingdom of heaven, and you say to yourself, well, if I do enough good works, if I'm less an adulterer than I am now, and I put away 99% of my idols, then can I inherit the kingdom of heaven? The answer is no. You don't inherit the kingdom of heaven that way. The way to the kingdom of heaven is a way of being justified by faith alone. It's a way through Christ alone, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So we need to be clear on that. When we answer the question, why must we do good works, our fathers implicitly, it's not stated here explicitly, except in the premise, are saying, it's not that. It may be that. And just so we're clear, if you make it that, you're not saved. No one is saved who imagines that. They are still in an unsaved state. One who is saved knows where his salvation comes from, knows how it's worked, knows what it means to be saved by grace. So we need to be clear on that. That's also included in the first part of the answer. It's a concessive clause 
because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, notice that's part of the answer. What it's saying there is the reformed must is not that your good works in any way redeem you, nor do they in any way deliver you. To do that or say that would deny Christ and his blood, would be a denial of his redemption and the deliverance of his blood or his death. So we have to make sure that we understand the must here. Now that's in one direction. There's another direction that it's easy to misunderstand the must too, which is to deny that good works must be even necessary. The Lord's Day, if it's read at all, the Lord's Day, if it's believed at all, is read this way. Since we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours, why must we still do good works? Answer, we really don't. You see, because good works and grace are two opposite ends of two poles. If it's by grace, then it's not by works. And if you say we must do good works, then you're implying that. You're at least implying it. You're saying then that good works are part of the way unto the Father. You're saying that good works are something that merit or obtain with God. You're saying that good works obtain our salvation, gain our salvation. Perhaps even give as proof. It says here that we're delivered. We're even delivered by Christ's blood. So we're entirely and completely delivered. And good works, since they play no part in that or role of that or don't belong to that, we may speak of must. I've been told that. That this question really is mistaken. Doesn't really mean what it says. Because it denies grace. It denies the premise. That is as an old idea, perhaps even older, an idea, a false idea, a false notion, than that which denies grace. We might say to ourselves, it's a phantom notion. Usually that's what those who don't like this Lord's Day say. There's no such person that actually thinks that and would say that and believes that. But it's said and done all the time, and it's been said and done all the time. The apostles fought this notion. The apostle Paul, no proponent of Arminianism certainly, even addresses it in the book of Romans. It's addressed in the book of Revelation. It's addressed by Peter. It's addressed by Paul. This notion that would say, because we're saved by grace without works, therefore we must not do good works. We can't do good works. We don't do good works. There's all kinds of ways to try to say that, especially if one is reformed and subscribes to this Lord's Day. Well, we really don't do them. We really don't. I know it says that here, but what it really means is you don't do them. You can't. You're totally depraved. It's impossible for you to do them. They'll say, well, if you talk about the fact that we must do good works, you're denying that Jesus is a complete Savior. He's a complete Savior. His salvation is all completed. It's all done. It's all finished. He said so. But if you say must, then you're implying 
that something more still needs to be done. You're, you're implying that Jesus' works isn't done. It is, it's not complete. That's law preaching. That's the law. That's not the gospel. And the fathers say, not so. That's not the Reformed faith. That's not the gospel. That's not biblical. That's nonsense. You see, you have to understand what our fathers are saying here and what they're doing here. And they're connecting good works to our salvation in a very important and essential way. So closely do our fathers connect here the subject matter of salvation and good works that they teach, as it was said earlier, that even contrary to the notion that this doctrine makes men careless and profane, they say it's impossible that a child of good not do good works. That's part of the answer here. Why must we do good works? Part of the answer is, well, it's impossible not to. And and notice, our fathers aren't saying that it's impossible not to, and therefore we don't need to talk about it. That's the end of the story. They're inevitable. They are inevitable. May take that away. That's how certain we have to be that good works must be performed. That if they're lacking and if they're missing, if they're not there, if a child of God lives a wicked and ungrateful life, unconverted, he does not belong to the kingdom of heaven. He hasn't been delivered and redeemed by Jesus Christ. That's the way it goes. That's how closely they're tied. But why is that? Well, we're going to address part of the why at the beginning here under the certainty, which is the answer is exactly because Jesus is a complete Savior. That's the answer. Jesus is not a half a Savior. Jesus doesn't do half of the work and then leave the rest up to you. Jesus doesn't simply forgive your sins and then leave you in jail. Jesus doesn't simply save you from the guilt and the shame of sin and then leave you to the power of the devil. That would be half a Savior. Herman Hooksman reminds us that if you're going to understand this, you have to go back to our misery, which we learn out of the law of God. And what do we learn when we look at the law of God in our misery? What is the totality of our misery? What is it? Because don't forget, that's what you're saved from. If you want to know what the essence of salvation, if you want to know what salvation consists of, and I bring this up because often the people that object to this Lord's Day identify salvation with justification. Now, it may be identified with salvation if understood correctly, but it's not understood correctly. So we need to go back to the beginning and ask yourself, what did we learn from the law of God is your misery? Is it simply that you're guilty? before God. Well, that's part of it, certainly. My misery is that I'm condemned by God. I'm guilty before God. In fact, I'm guilty and condemned before God before I'm even born. I'm guilty and condemned before God by the sin of Adam, with the sin of Adam. I bear that guilt. My depravity condemns me. And then when you get into my sins, every single one of them makes me guilty, makes me worthy of damnation. Is that the end of your misery? No. Your misery is that you are prone to hate God and your neighbor. Your misery is that you cannot serve God. You don't want to. 
You're opposed to God. Are you delivered from that? Are you going to be delivered from that? Do you want to be delivered from that? The child of God says, absolutely. You see, it's sort of like this. You have to imagine a big prison cell in a dungeon somewhere with a prisoner who's in there, guilty and condemned. Now, to complete the analogy, or at least be fair to the analogy, we have to have a prisoner who's laying there in the prison cell, stone dead. In a prison cell, condemned, stone dead. That's our misery. And Jesus is going to deliver you from that. Now, what does he do? Well, we know that he says about that prisoner that he's forgiven. He's no longer guilty. A sentence has been passed on that prisoner in that cell, not guilty. He is free to go. That cell has no right to hold him any longer. The jailer must let him go. He's been delivered. He's been saved in a very real sense. Because that prisoner now has the right to freedom, has the right to go, has a right to live a life of freedom in the kingdom of the king. Is that it? Has that prisoner been delivered from his misery? Completely and entirely. He says, I hope not. Because that's not all his misery. There he is, stone dead. He, he doesn't know what's been said about him. He, he doesn't know that he's been forgiven. He doesn't know his sins have been paid for. He's dead. Someone has to come along and revive him. Someone has to come along and wake him up. Give him eyes to see and ears to hear. Make his legs to work and his arms to work and his body to work. And that's done. Boom! The prisoner's alive. But he's still in jail. Is he saved from his misery? Not really. I mean, he is. He's alive where formerly he was dead. He's not guilty, whereas previously he was guilty. The one who frees him also comes and unlocks the jail cell and says, go, go. Now serve the king. Serve the king who said you're not guilty. Go serve the king who gave you life and breath, who gives you eyes to see and ears to hear. Go. Does it make sense? You see, the subject matter and the answer to the question of the must is because... Jesus is a complete Savior. He doesn't live, deliver us just half the way or part of the way. Deliver us from one aspect of sin but not the other. He does the whole thing. That's why it's certain. And that's why there's a must. The must is not, sir or ma'am, you must do good works so that you can be saved. So that you may, by your good works, inherit the kingdom of heaven. So that now you are righteous before God. No, the must is exactly what the catechism says, and I'll read it. Keep in mind the analogy. Because Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his blood, now is going to apply his life. Jesus delivers us by his blood. He redeems us by his blood, his death. But now by his life he's going to do something. He also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image. I want to emphasize this. Anyone 
who believes in the doctrine of total depravity such that he denies this, denies the Reformed faith. The truth of total depravity for a saved child of God, this one saved by grace, is one whereby he is also renewed by the Holy Spirit. Understand that, please. Deny that, you deny the Reformed faith. You deny Christ. Christ having redeemed us, Christ having delivered us by his blood, also by his Spirit renews us after his own image. Stop right there. You understand what it means to be renewed in the image of Christ, right? You remember the image in Adam and what it was. It was true righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. That renewal in the image of Christ isn't simply a pronouncement, I see you, as Christ. I see you in the image of Christ. I see you as righteous. But it is an actual renewal and transformation of a child of God into that which he was not previously. He knows what he did not know. He is righteous where he was not righteous. He is holy where previously he was not holy. That's the work of Christ. And that's the must. Deny the must You deny Christ. That's the certainty, you see. That's the certainty of this whole thing. You could end right there and be done. Now also don't imagine this by that certainty. Well, that just happens. Well, that's nice to know. I'm so thankful. Oops, that kind of gave it away, you see. That's often the notion, too. The notion that perhaps a period exclamation mark should have put, been put right there, and that therefore the rest of this section on deliverance, maybe we can just tear out and throw away. That's been done. That's the, that's the idea. Well, why go on to teach the Ten Commandments? Doesn't that just reinforce the notion that we're saved by keeping the Ten Commandments? Why give instruction on prayer, especially that prayer is the means God uses to grant what we request? Doesn't that make prayer a condition? We should just end and stop right there. Catechism said, no. No. You have to understand the purpose. It has to do with Christ being a complete Savior, but there's a purpose. Oh, yes, good works are fruits. They are fruits of election. They are fruits of faith. They are inevitable. They flow forth from the good tree. But they have a purpose. In fact, without the purpose, strip the purpose, take away the purpose, and you don't have a good work any longer. You may have an individual who seems to keep the law of God, thus producing what may seem to be a good work. But as we're going to see in the next Lord's Day, such is not a good work, because good works have a purpose. The purpose is not, as I said before, have anything to do with saving us. The purpose is found in the Savior. The purpose is found in God. He has created us. We are His workmanship 
created unto good works, and then they are explained time and time and time again in the Holy Scriptures. What are they? Well, we could divide them into two sections, those that have to do with God, that we may, by those good works, that's the whole of our conduct, the whole of our conduct, notice the whole of our conduct, testify of our gratitude to God for His blessings. Remember, the blessings that we are thankful for are all the blessings of salvation, including the good works themselves. The child of God may not and does not pray to God simply that his sins are forgiven, but prays to God every day for the eyes by which he sees and the feet that walk on the path they walk. Thanks Christ for the renewal of the Spirit, for the presence of the Spirit. You see, that keeps us from even misusing good works and turning them into what they are not. So much so that we mayn't even really think of our good works as gifts that we give to God. Gifts we return to God, gifts that He gave us, and we return back to Him as a gratitude. But notice, please, that the child of God is not simply thankful that God has forgiven him all his sins. The child of God, who's truly thankful, is thankful every day, really every minute of every day, for the very thanksgiving that he has, for the love that he finds in his heart, for his dear Savior. And that he may be praised by us. Notice, gratitude is separated there from praise. There's really not much difference, but you have to understand the idea. Sometimes we say to ourselves that the only good works that we do are those that explicitly praise God. No, that's not really the idea. You see, full deliverance from our misery is fellowship with God. That's what they are. When you pray, you have fellowship with God. When you walk and behave according to to the law of God. You are walking and talking with God. You are living with God. But that doesn't have to be speaking praise to be praise to God. The point is the whole life, all of the conduct, praises God in and of itself. Just the same way as a mountain there rising out of the earth in all of its beauty gives praise to God without saying a word. Our lives praise God. And that because they can't be done by a person who's not saved. A child of a, a person, an individual who is still unconverted, unregenerate, cannot do those things. So that when they're done, God is to be praised. They find their power in Him, they find their source in Him, they come from the Holy Spirit. He produces them. He works them. Gives us the will and desire to do them. But they also have a function and a purpose with regard to us and human beings. I don't have to get into a number of them. There's others that aren't even listed here, but there are two. That everyone may be assured in himself of his faith by the fruits thereof. And that by our godly conversation, others may be gained to Christ. The first one may be misunderstood. Good works do not assure my faith. 
My faith doesn't need good works to be assured because my faith is assurance. And yet this is here and needs to be understood. It's hard to understand. It's hard to explain. I'll admit that. Herman Hooksma said that it assures us that we are in the faith. You might ask what that means. I might have to shrug my shoulder, but I think you know what it means, and I think I know what it means. It's very plain, very simple, and it's what the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works this. I don't. My works don't work it. It's an aspect of faith even, which is when a person lives a wicked and ungrateful life, they do not have the certainty of their salvation. They are not assured that they are in the faith. You know it, and I know it. You say, why? It's the way it works. A person who's walking in sin, who is living a wicked and ungrateful life, unconverted, is not assured that they are in the faith. They doubt that. But when we live according to God's commandments, when we live being renewed by the Spirit, there's something about it where you just know it. In my opinion, it's sort of like a a quacks like a duck sort of thing. How do you know a duck is a duck when it quacks like a duck? And the Holy Spirit works that, just like he testifies with our spirit that we're the children of God. Others may be gained to Christ. You can include all kinds of things with that. God uses what we do as a means of evangelism, of mean to make people ask the right questions. You know he uses it in the rearing of your own children, to teach them the fear of God, to teach them how they ought to live. What does it mean to serve God? What does it mean to keep the Ten Commandments? What is the importance of them? And those two are all part of those fruits and part of the must. Don't forget. We'll examine some of these things next time also. But for now, you know the Reformed faith that we must do good works. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord our God, we thank Thee for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We thank Thee for the Holy Gospel of the completeness of our deliverance, that indeed we may give thanks all the days of our life. Lord, continue by thy Holy Spirit to renew us, to sanctify us, to transform us into thine image, and we long for that day of perfection, of perfect fellowship with thee, our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.